0: Coming to you from the Outer Mission, this is Monkey Block, a storytelling podcast focused on San Francisco's golden past, 1849 through 1906. I'm your host, Girlina. The stories are closely based on newspapers of the time, historical books, and journals. Disclaimer, I do my best to research and share the real stories, extracting legends or calling them out. Now, let's go back in time. Transcripts for this episode can be found at twitter.com monkeyblock or facebook.com monkeyblock and follow the Buzzsprout link on the transcript button. I'm fascinated by history for lots of reasons. Who decides how events get captured? Why do some events get morphed from the reality into fantastic stories, while other events quietly get removed and buried into the past? I have the advantage of viewing the past with a current lens when I research historical newspapers and personal accounts and books, and I try to understand the time and place something was written. So there's a duality to my perspective trying to understand the event in that time frame, and then also assessing the past event with the knowledge and perspective of today. The victor walks away from history, relaying events as they want it captured for future generations. And the people on the opposite side of that? Where does their history go? Sometimes that history gets buried as our views on social topics change and certain events become less favorable to the victor? If you were raised in California, you had the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade California history lessons. What do you recall about early California history and the missions? Hold on to those memories for the duration of this episode. If you didn't grow up in California, recall what you do know about the California missions, and hold on to that. Did you build a mission diorama and study mission architecture? Or did you visit one of the 21 California missions? I've driven by the San Francisco mission hundreds of times, but I've never been inside, or actually I've never been inside any mission. If you visited Mission San Francisco the Assis, which I'll call the San Francisco Mission for this episode, did you make it to the courtyard and see the cemetery? I remember our fourth grade class watching a reel-to-reel movie recounting life in the California missions. I was captivated by an actor playing a missionized, Christianized, Hispanicized Indian making adobe bricks and how lovingly he sowed the dirt and walked about the beautiful grounds, picking fruit from a tree as he walked to afternoon prayer. In episode one, I quickly touched on the indigenous Californians from 1776 to 1836 as the laborers who built and maintained the San Francisco mission. And that labor force included local and not-so-local indigenous people from across the bay and these are collectively called the Muwekma Aloni. There is plenty to say about this topic and its touchpoint to San Francisco history. I really wanted to walk away from this part of San Francisco's buried past which was erased with time in ways I couldn't have guessed before I started this research. This is history worth telling before the gold rush, even if it's uncomfortable history. Disclaimer, I am in no position to be the voice or the spokesperson for Native Californians or the Muwekma people. I seek the truth in my research, eliminating embellishments, or in this case, giving light to eliminated events. Since there is more to tell than a 20-minute podcast can cover, what I'm covering today is part one of a two-part episode. Here we go. Father Francisco Palau founded the San Francisco Mission under Father Unipro Serra. The San Francisco Mission was built in the middle of the Chuchui village, where the Ramayatush Ohlone lived, so think Dolores Park. Muwekma Ohlone is the preferred name for the Aboriginal people who can trace their ancestry to the Bay Area missions. The jurisdiction or district of San Francisco was considered the Presidio of of San Francisco, Mission of San Francisco, Mission of San Francisco Solano, Mission of San Rafael, Mission of Santa Clara, the town of San Jose de Guadalupe, Mission of San Jose, and the Mission of Santa Cruz. You could stretch the definition of willing to say initially, some Native Californians may have willingly found themselves at the mission, meaning hunger, due to the Spanish disruption of the land and therefore food sources. Fear of Spanish weaponry or protection from their enemies, and also a lack of language comprehension, and maybe some curiosity initially played a role in why some native Californians may have willingly found themselves at any mission. And by curiosity, I mean in the use of beads and trinkets and food to engage them. Once you were baptized, you or your offspring, entered into a baptismal contract, a contract you could not walk away from. Do you think they realized how demanding life would be, religiously and physically speaking, by agreeing to a baptism? Or that later they might change their mind about mission life? Let's explore that. We have people who don't speak Spanish, Who have complex reasons who might unduly be influenced to join a mission. Given the existing language barrier, you may not realize the extent of this baptismal contract. What did this contract entail? I'll get into that. The San Francisco Mission did rather well with cattle raising for the tallow and hide trading, and they successfully grew maize barley, pinto, and garbanzo beans. But it was clear early on the San Francisco mission wasn't able to produce all that it needed. So in 1787, a satellite mission was created called San Pedro and San Pablo Astesencia, which harvested the majority of the produce for the San Francisco mission. This is in current-day Pacifica at a location I grew up calling the Sanchez Adobe. A lot of today's episode is based upon Jonathan F. Cordeo, Native Persistence, Marriage, Social Structure, Political Leadership, and Intertribal Relations at Mission Dolores, 1777 through 1800, as well as Quincy D. Newell's The Varieties of Religious Experience, Baptized Indians at Mission San Francisco, the Assis, 1776 through 1821. At its peak, the San Francisco mission had 1,252 indigenous people working and living at the mission. The neophytes, as they were called, in San Francisco lived in reducciones or reductions that were eight rows of one-story dwellings that were cramped and considered unsanitary. And these were just 100 yards from the church, where soldiers were allowed to spend no more than 24 hours at a time. The Padres wrote letters back to Spain, capturing their knowledge of the soldiers' abuse of power. Prayer was twice a day, which I'm reading that it was in Latin and I'm reading that it was in Spanish, but either way, from Chapter 4 of the Annals of San Francisco... Treatment of the Natives. This was written in 1854 regarding Captain Beechey's 1827, his second visit to the San Francisco mission. I happened to visit the mission about this time and saw unfortunate beings under tuition. They were clothed in blankets and arrayed in a row before a blind Indian who understood their dialect and was assisted by an accalde to keep order. Their tutor began by desiring them to kneel, informing them that he was going to teach them the names of the persons composing the Trinity, and that they were to repeat in Spanish what he dictated. Captain Frederick W. Beachy was with the English Navy. Captain Beachy also wrote in his An Account of of a visit to California 1826 to 1827, and this is regarding his November 1827 visit to both the Monterey and San Francisco mission. With whips, canes, and gourds, or sharp pointed sticks, to preserve silence and maintain order, and what seemed more difficult than either, to keep the congregation in their kneeling posture. The gourds would reach a long way and inflict a sharp puncture without making any noise. The ends of the church was occupied by a guard of soldiers under arms with fixed bayonets. The San Francisco Mission had a specific diet for the Muwekma Ohlone. It consisted of a tole for breakfast, and that's a corn-based drink, and they would do a full day of physical labor, Then for dinner, a bowl of pozole. That's a broth-based soup with hominy and bits of meat. When food supply allowed for it, they were additionally served lunch, which was also a bowl of pozole. Now imagine the caloric expenditure of their daily activities doing construction, farming, cow and horse tending and blacksmithing. One cup of a corn-based drink And if you're lucky, two bowls of a broth soup with bits of meat and hominy is not a varied diet. And we aren't talking that colorful plate of vegetable garnishes you get with your Sunday pozole in San Francisco or Oakland. Captain Beachy noted that the only difference he could tell between the atole and the pozole were the bits of meat in the pozole soup. As reported in letters from the Padres back to Mexico and Spain, the indigenous deaths at the Mission San Francisco de Asís were due to the cold weather and inadequate food. So, why weren't the Padres also dying at the same rate from the same cold and the same food? That's because the San Francisco Mission reserved the fruits and vegetables from the Pacifica Astesencia for the priests, soldiers, and the indigenous leaders, alcaldes. Life at the Pacifica astesencia allowed traditional family living arrangements off-site and, for what it's worth, better working and eating conditions with fewer stipulations around suppressing Native traditions which was not true at the San Francisco Mission. In general, as did not have on-site padres. The San Francisco Mission was interested in maintaining the social structure, political authority of the Muwekma Ohlone, but not the traditions and rituals. If you wanted a survivable diet that included adequate clothing, you needed to hold a leadership position at the San Francisco Mission. However, true to the San Francisco mission, having an already existing high social standing in your native community was a prerequisite for a leadership Indian occulte position, despite other California missions allowing any tribe member to potentially become an Indian occulte. Side note, it was male children from high status families who found themselves in Indian alcalde positions at the San Francisco mission. Back to Chapter 4 of the Annals of San Francisco. To sharpen the intellects of the converts, sticks, whips, long gourds, and the like were unhesitatingly employed by the beetles of the church during Mass and prayers, to silence the unruly and make the refractory attentive and dutiful. Starvation and stripes, indeed, attended the perverse Indian wherever he went, and it was his interest he could be made to understand that at all events, to comply with the wishes of his kind priestly persecutors as far as his animal nature would permit. The conversion produced by such means could scarcely be intellectual or very sincere. It seemed sufficient, however, that the Indian duly attended Mass, which he was obliged to do under penalty of a sound, edifying whipping, knelt and muttered his incomprehensible Spanish words, made the sign of the cross often and properly enough, and could correctly repeat to his spiritual tutors when called upon the few Kabbalistic phrases which they had taught him. Whether he understood the meaning of these things was quite another question, as to which it was not necessary for the fathers to be impertently curious. So starvation and physical punishment were a regular means to save their souls and ensure manual labor was done. It's just so counterintuitive, And I doubt anyone would knowingly sign up for this if they understood the religious and physical demands that came with the baptismal contract. Dear listeners, The Annals of San Francisco was written in 1854, clearly prior to the burying of historical events, which weren't discussed as part of my California history lessons. You can read this book for free as part of the public commons. I have a link to this chapter in my transcripts. Again, twitter.com, monkeyblock sf. A few indigenous would escape or try and hope they weren't found, punished, and forced back to the mission. Outside of the weekend paseos, or passes, seldomly granted, you were not permitted to leave the mission. The Padres, specifically, at the San Francisco mission, did not allow for ceremonial traditions around death, while other missions allowed for cutting or burning of your hair and painting your face with ashes, as was traditional after a death. There were instances where people specifically ran away to be able to die and have their traditional mourning rituals perform and be buried with their people. The Presidio and mission soldiers who searched for and retrieved escaped huidos, runaways, said the regularly stated reasons for running away were always one of the three muchos. Mucho hunger, mucho work, mucho punishment. When the labor died due to the cold weather and inadequate food, The missions replenished their labor force, and that was mostly against their will. The paseos were accompanied by Spanish ships with the converted Indian to visit their non-missionized families with the expectation this paseo would result in the converted Indian convincing others to come back with them to the mission. And if that failed. Then the capture of women and children was employed, knowing that the husbands and parents would willingly follow. Life expectancy for children born at the San Francisco Mission prior to 1791 declined from eight years old down to two years old by 1800. The average life expectancy for a baby born at the Mission San Francisco the Assis was two years old. That statistic is specific to the San Francisco mission and not all of the California missions. But it gets worse. Page 98, A World Transformed, Firsthand Accounts of California Before the Gold Rush by Joshua Pattison Between 1806 and 1810, measles killed more than one-third of all the neophytes in San Francisco Bay Area, but left the Spaniards untouched. Measles have wreaked havoc upon the Indians of this province, but none at all upon the Gente de Razón. That's the Spaniards. And this is noted from Father Martin de Landeta at Mission San Francisco on April 28, 1806. The cemetery at the San Francisco Mission contained 5,503 Indigenous people over a 60-year stretch. I said contained because the majority of that cemetery is now paved over by 16th Street, the Mission Dolores Basilica Church, the Chancery Building of the Archdiocese of San Francisco, and the Mission School. Mission San Francisco de Assis had the highest indigenous mortality rate of all the California missions. Life at the missions, including life at the San Francisco mission, were captured in letters written by the padres themselves and eyewitness accounts as they were happening. What happened to this part of San Francisco history? There's still more to say about this topic, more than I can put into one episode, so I've broken this into a two-part episode. It takes me about a month to complete the research, writing, recording, and editing, but I will try to get the second part of this episode out faster than that. Despite the uncomfortable nature of this topic, this is San Francisco history worth telling, even if it's not San Francisco's most golden history. Why do some events get morphed from the reality into fantastic stories, while other events quietly get removed and buried in the past? Please bookmark this podcast so you can listen to the second part of this episode. Thank you for listening. This is Monkey Block, San Francisco's Golden History.